November 20th, 2006. At an academic conference in Montreal, I tell a prominent Iranian historian that I'm thinking of writing a book about metaphors of illness in Iranian literature and film. He tells me that in the early 20th century, Iran was sometimes depicted as an ailing mother who needed the aid of her sons to regain her health. I still have not written the book. You're listening to My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora. A special series on What's That Noise? Welcome to episode two of our special series covering My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora. A wonderful, edited collection of very personal pieces spearheaded by our friends Catherine Whitney and Layla Emery, whose voices you heard in our first episode and at the beginning of this one. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen before proceeding with this second episode, which features Dr. Babak Ilahi, Liberal Studies Head of Department at Kettering University in Flint, Michigan, USA. I hope you recognize his name from the first episode of the series where I mentioned him as the musical talent for the series. Babak is going to reflect on these pieces later in this episode, and it happens to be one of my favorite points of it. I actually can't specify a favorite moment in this particular episode, and that's because I found myself regularly taking pause and learning something new in all of his reflections. And what struck me straight off the top when interviewing him was how articulate and specific he is especially around extremely personal subject matter. In the first episode, Catherine and Layla revealed to us that so many contributors were so vulnerable and equally courageous to share such deeply personal and intimate experiences with us. Babak is no exception. And yet there's more to the impact of this episode than merely Babak's experiences. On the one hand, you're going to recognize straight away that his expertise in American literature clearly speaks to the craft with which he communicates. On the other hand, you will hear strength in his voice that is steeped in adaptability, compromise, and a commitment to family and community well-being as if it were something of a lost tradition. His tone is positively grabbing. I may have otherwise used a word like arresting here, minus the notion of police seizure, but very much so in the sense that how he speaks holds you in place. To share so openly about such captivating life experiences, there is so very much that we can learn from Dr. Elahi about growth and identity and justice and honor and representation and belonging. Many of you know that I often preview some detail of what is to come in my episodes. I won't do that now. I want you to hear from Babak himself, as he reflects upon the past, present, and futures of his contribution to My Shadow is My Skin. His piece is an excellent fit under the book's third section called Memory and Longing. 
chapter 25, called Errand, I think courageously reflects upon the days and months leading to Babek's dear mother's death. Let us listen and learn together as Babak reflects on his decision about what piece to write for this wonderful collection. It is one of those where it, it is fairly personal about my family. And so that was, that gave me some pause. But at the same time, there was no other piece I could have written for this collection because of the timing. When, when Catherine and Layla got in touch with me, I had gone on this trip already and it had been, you know, a return to Iran after 40 years. So I thought, I mean, even before they got in touch with me, I thought I should, I kind of need to write something about this. Um, necessarily thinking that I would place it anywhere, but I just sort of, I kept a very detailed diary while I was there for the two weeks that I visited. This is 2014. Uh, and it was a last minute decision to go. I had had um, years of trying to get an Iranian passport, which would have made it easier for me to travel. And that had finally come through a couple of months before. For all, so for all these reasons, and the, the pressing concern that my mother didn't have long to live, I, I did something that's, that's fairly um, uncharacteristic of me, which is not deliberate about a decision very much and just say, okay, I got to go. I got the plane tickets. I figured out my passport situation and I, and I went. And I, as I said, I kept a detailed diary. It was going back to Iran after 40 years of not being there. And when I got back, I just thought I, I need to um, uh, process all this. And so the request for the piece came at a time where I was ready to write about this experience. And most of my publications, actually, I, other than this, have not been personal essays or creative writing. Uh, even though in the back of my mind I've I've wanted to, um, you know, write creative nonfiction or 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 even fiction, and have never really um, gone in that direction. So I w I was grateful to get a chance to write about this, and then when time came to actually submit the piece, I did start to get nervous. You know, I'm saying things about my brothers and my mother and wanting to do justice to them all, but, you know, wanting also to be honest about those sort of family dynamics that, that I grew up with. Um, so for all those reasons, I just, I felt like it was perfect timing. It was the right time to write something. It seemed to have to be the right venue to address this. And ultimately I think what I decided is that I needed to honor something. I needed to honor that experience and I needed to honor my mother. Um, and so, you know, I certainly include certain problematic aspects, especially my kind of debate with my brother about, um, you know, what all this meant. Um, but again, I think it, it feels a little raw when I read it back to myself that there's a lot I kind of place out there. I'm positively captivated by your chapter's title, Errand. Can you tell us a little bit more about its origin? It has overlapping meanings for me. Um, 
the most sort of denotative meaning was that I had met Abbas Kiorostami earlier that spring, and um, I had talked to him and his translator at a party in Syracuse. And he had mentioned that one of the films he was going to work on involved um, American uh, American men who were training for the priesthood. And this was came out of nowhere. And and then uh, the translator and I talked, and and he said, "Do you you know you're you're a literature professor? Do you know of any any American short fiction?" And he said, "The shorter the better, even if it's a page. I'd prefer that." <laughs> uh, and so I thought, oh, okay, I have this I have this assignment. And then the real kind of primary meaning for the for the story, not its denotative, but its deeper connotation for me, is the errand of being with next to my mother uh, before she before she died. Uh, and in a way, I you know, one of my brothers was there. I'm one of four. Um, and the other two brothers couldn't go. So in a sense, it was an errand on their behalf that they couldn't go. At least one of us was able to go. So those are the two sort of primary, one denotative, one sort of connotative. And then for me, as as, a, as someone who ended up studying American literature rather than uh, Iranian literature as, as an undergrad and graduate student, the word errand resonates deeply in in uh, the history of U.S. literature. You know, the no- notion of errand into the wilderness, the, you know, errand. And, and I wanted to kind of turn that on its head uh, a little bit. I don't know how conscious this was. This might be more sort of in a, a retroactive reading of it. But um, yeah, that word just resonated with me in a number of different ways. And, and I wanted to have a simple... Uh, straightforward title. Well, maybe not so straightforward, but absolutely, yeah. Bobak, regular listeners of my show know that I love tensions, and I find some interesting ones in your piece around language and hospital visitation restrictions and around themes like representation and honor. And so I'm wondering, did these tensions or others play a significant role in how you wrote your piece? My relationship with my mother was very close. But like all parent-child relationships, there were some tensions. And I and I think kind of negotiating those was one of the biggest challenges in, in writing it. Um, you know, I, I wanted to say something about everything that she had done, right? She was, my parents had separated. They, um, she was still barely in her 30s. And she went from Iran to Brighton, England, um, and basically worked and raised us and, and um, through things like downward mobility and, and, um, and changes in our lives and, and, and moving a couple of times, you know, she was, she was able to uh, stay strong through all that. But then I think what what my relationship with my brother brought up is that we still had some unresolved feelings about, you know, how we were raised, our relationships with each other, and that we felt a little helpless in terms of what she was going through. Particularly in, in you know, I think I convey this in the piece of trying to visit her in the hospital 
uh, and you know, it's in Tehran and, and there's, um, visiting hours for men and visiting hours for women and, and wanting to figure all that out. And then, um, so there, there was, there were so many, um, strands, both personal and cultural and political. Um, and I just wanted to really make sure that sort of honoring her, Hmm. uh, didn't get lost in all of that. I understand. Yeah. If one of your goals was to honor your mother, you have done so beautifully here. Thank you very much for sharing this with us. I really do appreciate that. I'd like to ask you now about how you reflect on your life as an Iranian-American in general, but more specifically about how the richness of your life's experiences shapes your insight into daily events and issues. I happen to be really curious about how you process things like, for example, uh, neoliberalism in American society. How do you process, navigate, speak to, and make sense of these kinds of isms that tend to characterize quote-unquote Western life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think some of the things that that um, helped me make sense of looking at Iran today, but also kind of trying to figure out the history of that nation that produced uh, my family's experience what helped was, frankly, the, the kind of community that a collection like My Shadow is My Skin has generated. So I, I studied American literature in, in, in graduate school. So my PhD is in, in um, American lit. I wrote about um, American realism, mainly about immigrant writers. But then once I finished the degree, at a couple of conferences, I, I eventually met Persis Karim, and then uh, met a number of other scholars in the field, both in Iranian studies, but also in this sort of fledgling emerging uh, diaspora, Iranian diaspora studies group. And there was a kind of endorsement of each other, you know, saying, okay, in graduate school, we couldn't focus on this particular area. Our colleagues currently don't completely recognize this, but we, encourage and endorse each other's work and and we want to learn about the Iranian diasporic experience and then what that triggered for me is that I I felt like um, in order to understand the diasporic experience I had to uh, develop my ability to, to read in Persian which I had not done I, my family left when I was four years old and I had grown up speaking, Persian in the house, but had not, you know, retained any reading ability at all. So, you know, in my 40s, late 30s, early early 40s, I just said, okay, I'm going to get a dictionary, get a couple of books and start reading. And I, and, and that kind of comes across in the piece that I wrote when I'm trying to sort of read the bureaucratic language of the hospital, <laughs> you know, regulations. But to, to bring that back to how this helps me make sense of, of things. It's, it, it was just, you know, an enriching experience to engage with colleagues for whom this scholarship is both professional and personal uh, in the ways that it was for us. Now, the second part of your question in terms of the, those kinds of, you know, neoliberal uh, motives around us that can limit uh, or challenge or, or problematize uh, our relationship to Iran. I mean, 
you know, there's there's a recent example of this with the appointment of Elliot Abrams uh, recently. You know, Elliot Abrams was part of the Iran-Contra trials some 25 years ago. And and actually, I guess it's longer than that. Um, and here he is now appointed to this government, uh, by this government to, to deal with Iran. And it's one of those examples of, of you know, boy, I thought we already, <laughs> I thought we fought this battle already. <laughs> and, and here we are again, just this kind of, you know, divisive approach to, to uh, the United States' relationship to Iran. And that's, that's in so many of the pieces in this collection, coming to terms with that sense that, you know, these two strands of one's identity are never woven really sort of harmonically or or there's always a tension. There's always a, you know, sparks flying. There's always some sense of trying to deal with that. So, um, but I guess the way, the way we continue to deal with it is, you know, um, I so respect the kind of work that, um, you know, Amy Malik, for example, is doing Persis Karim continues to do in, you know, finding those, those, examples of diasporic culture where we create our own sense of purpose and identity, you know, uh, regardless of the, the tensions that, the uh, well, not, not tensions, but conflicts, uh, frankly, that, that are part of that relationship. I'm selfishly excited to return to this bit about tensions because one of the best pieces of advice I ever received professionally was from my PhD supervisor, Robert Latham. And he said, Thomas, tensions are productive. Great insight and work emerges from them. He doesn't actually sound like that, but you're really touching on this memory for me. And it reminds me of why it's so important in life and in scholarship to deal with tensions. I'm thinking back now to one of our pre-interview chats on the phone that we had at few weeks ago. And you had mentioned another piece inside of this collection that left a really strong impression upon you in terms of how it navigated and negotiated its own tensions. 1,916 days. From Whitman to Dorothy, I think you said. I mean, first of all, you know, if I haven't said it already, I'm just kind of um, flabbergasted to be in the company of of such great writers in um, in this collection. And so that that in itself was an honor, but but that piece by uh, Mandana Chaffa, who I had the the pleasure of being on a um, sort of a Zoom panel discussion and reading uh, a couple of months ago, that's one of those pieces that really resonated for me. And I think she's claiming all kinds of you know cultural things that ought to belong to anybody who who claims them. <laughs> I mean, the kind of um, laundry list approach of her first several sentences. I remember, I remember, I remember, and then I don't remember at the end of that first page. That's very Walt Whitman-esque, you know, and so she's kind of already claiming that heritage. And then, you know, she mentions everyone from F. Scott Fitzgerald to, you know, the show Wild Kingdom to, and then towards the end, she throws Hansel and Gretel, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, and Dante <laughs> together as sort of, you know, they were also lost, right? 
that whole sense of lostness that she sort of turns on its head and says, you know, well, well, some of the most productive things come out of this sense of being lost and finding one's way. Uh Just, you know, that kind of writing, I'm just thrilled that this collection is out there because you can see such a wide range of kinds of uh, Iranian diaspora creativity and, you know, soul searching and, and exploration. So that's, that's just another aspect of what I think this, this collection means. And the fact that it's coming out of university of Texas press and, and it's getting some recognition, just, I'm, I'm, you know, thrilled about it. Words like differentiation and variegation seem to characterize identity for so many chapters in the series. And I think there's a sense of liberty uh, that comes from recognizing the liquidity and change that makes a life's expression so different from one to the next. And yet I, I can't help but imagine a poor student of identity politics in a very conventional political science classroom getting lost in these kind of postmodern logics. And I chuckle a little bit because I also recognize how much intellectual purchase is placed upon that agency-robbing nature of neoliberalism to the extent that the idea of becoming something is like a storm. There is immense chaos from within and from without, blurring together in a way that can totally shock someone into a fear of growth. Could you please tell me a bit more about your life in the U.S.? I understand you've moved quite a few times since you moved to the United States, and I'm hoping you might be able to reflect a little bit upon your journey in your skin, if I may. In terms of my own sort of migratory history, I guess, um, the fact that my childhood I spent actually in England, in Brighton, England, uh, from age four till age, uh, I think I was 11. And when I was 11, we moved to the U.S., specifically to San Diego. This was 1976. This was the bicentennial when we moved (laughs) to the U.S., And then um, when I got married, my wife and I moved to uh, Rochester, New York, where her family is from. And her background is sort of just some French, some Polish, some, you know, she grew up in Rochester. Uh, And now professionally, I've moved to to an administrative position here in Flint, Michigan. So that sense of sort of picking up and moving, the first couple of them not being my choice, but simply a parent saying, okay, we're going. And then that that third move to Rochester, New York, being a very conscious choice on my part as, okay, this is the the partner I'm going to be with. This is where I'm moving. In each of those, I have felt at a further remove from the Iranian diaspora as a kind of community, but maybe closer to the uh, Iranian diaspora as a network. You know, I think if I had, yeah, if I had stayed in San Diego, it would have been the sense of, okay, yes, I'm, I'm in a place where there are a lot of Iranians, and there's a certain, I think, Southern California culture and vibe to, you know, the Iranian diaspora community. But being removed from that concentrated group to Rochester, where there is there are some Iranians, but it's not a huge community, and then now in Flint, that my connection to that network of Iranian diasporic identity has become all the more important. 
Um, so, you know, continuing to, uh, to write about Iranian and Iranian diaspora culture and continuing to connect with colleagues. Um, I think maybe one of the most important outcomes of all this is, is, um, you know, in a sense, having lived in Rochester as long as I did, that feels a lot like home, but also because my daughters were born there and both my daughters, you know, I think they're, they have reached the point in their lives, they're both in their 20s, where they can now become legitimately angry with me for not having spoken Farsi in the house enough when they were growing up. But they, they both embrace Iranian culture each in their own way. The, the older one, she's 27, she introduces all her friends to Iranian cooking, and, and she has she's probably better at it now than I am, <laughs> at least a few dishes. Uh, and the younger one um, just completed a BFA in ceramics and is going to continue in ceramics uh, for uh, an MFA eventually. And she has delved into Iranian ceramics and, and learned about it and, and has kind of used that art as a way of expressing her own kind of combined connection and disconnection from Iran, you know, feeling very connected to Iran through me, but then sort of not having the same kind of markers that I do. So um, I guess to, to kind of res- respond to the, to the question or your prompt, and it, you know, I think for, for each of us, there's this sense of, okay, I'm going to hold on to that cultural identity, but, but I'm also sort of moving forward as a human being and let me see what parts of my continued narrative will retain kind of some connection to that network, uh, as I called it. Um, and I think you see that. And again, I, I keep wanting to bring it back to the, to the collection. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of that 1.5 generation. Uh, you know, certainly I was born in Iran, but I left at a young enough age that, you know, that I still sort of have this, bifurcated sense of self. But then there are some in this collection, like my daughters, who are second generation and and have to kind of invent their own contract, I guess, or their own set of expectations about their relationship to Iranian identity. Babak, as a Canadian, I have to admit that my relatively under-engaged understanding of the socioeconomic, political, and cultural issues in Flint, Michigan are rather filtered. The media here has been committed at various points to exposing struggles and challenges where you live, and they do so in very specific ways. I think this would be a really interesting opportunity if you could reflect, if you don't mind, a bit more upon your life and your identity in Flint, Michigan. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, um, um, for, I mean, for one thing, uh, what what brought uh, Jenny and I, my wife and I here, um, was primarily my getting the offer from this university, Kettering University, but also that she um, was offered a position at a um, uh, the Flint Cultural Center Academy, and it's it's a it's an elementary school, and um, it's trying to be very innovative and trying to sort of um, fill certain gaps and. And one of the things I was struck by when we, when I first interviewed at, at Kettering, and then we had a look around the area, was um, 
there were lots of folks really trying to make a difference in Flint. I mean, Flint has gone through a lot and it's been, you know, it's been insult to injury uh, in terms of what the city has, has experienced. And, and mainly some of those things that were well-documented and well-known from the 80s, which is uh, GM basically closing down plants and a lot of people losing their jobs and, and just the, the city being kind of gutted of its, um, frankly, its tax base and, and a lot of its people. And then the water crisis obviously added to that. And my experience has been that there's this interesting, we were just talking about it today, actually, with, with one of my colleagues that we're trying to do something about this, that Kettering University, where I'm head of liberal studies and I teach, um, is in a bit of a bubble. You know, it, it's in the city of Flint, um, but a lot of the students are simply residents on campus, um, uh, majority white, and they have very little interaction with the city itself. Some of my colleagues in the department, um, and this is, I say them because I'm, I've been here a year. Some of them have been working on this for several years, have been really trying to connect the Kettering community to the Flint community and say, look, we're part of the city. We should not just remain in a bubble. And I think, you know, the university is, is moving towards trying to do more about that. I think a lot more could be done. Uh, and I think a lot of that is going to happen, frankly, with people in my department. In terms of my own identity, you know, I think the, the couple of interesting elements, you know, for example, um, several months ago, I was in a committee meeting and there were, you know, this is a university of 2000 students. So, you know, faculty and staff are a pretty small organization. And in this committee meeting of about 10 people, there were four Iranians or four Iranian Americans. And I thought that's kind of a high <laughs> ratio. <laughs> and so I think there are these weird tensions between kind of where I find myself professionally and wanting to tell that story of, oh, look how successful we are as Iranians, we're blah, blah, blah. And then realizing I'm also part of a nation that has a history of racial injustice of which the Iranian piece is just one component. Uh, and as we've learned over the past few months uh, with the response to uh, George Floyd's uh, killing in, in Minneapolis, that, you know, there's a reckoning uh, going on right now. And, you know, I, I'm I'm um, I'm skeptical enough to to think okay well hopefully it's a it's a reckoning but if if we look to the past it, it I fear it might not uh, amount to as much as it should but you know that that also makes me reflect on sort of as immigrants where do we fit into that larger story of class race and gendered injustice in the U.S. And in, a, in an interesting way, Flint is, you know, a, a very interesting place to be to reflect on, on that history and maybe even get involved in, in, in some of these issues. I'll tell you a little anecdote. Back in, um, this was January or February, uh, before the COVID-19 sort of lockdown in Michigan, 
And I was riding the bus to work. Uh, we live only a few miles away and I had driven in, I'd walked in, I decided, okay, I'll try the bus, get on the bus. Um, the driver I noticed was making a lot of eye contact with me um, and said, hello, took the bus the next day, same driver. And as I'm walking out, I pull the cord. It's going to stop at Kettering University. He looks over at me and he says, um, hey, where are you from? <laughs> and I say, you know, first of all, that's a complicated question for someone. <laughs> where am I from? Um, but I say, you know, I say I'm, I'm originally Iranian. And, and I say, where are you from? <laughs> and he says, well, I'm Mexican. And then he adds at the end, yeah, we're cousins, right? <laughs> and that was, I mean, that was just mm. kind of a beautiful moment yeah. for me. Um, yeah. There was this sense of recognition across, within, around all of the barriers that are placed around us, right? I mean, um, I'm a salaried employee of a university he's a wage earner driving a, driving a bus. And, and there was just this kind of human connection at that moment um, that, that said, um, you know, we, we can, we can overcome these kind of differences. Um, so, you know, that, that anecdote, I think brought home to me that um, our identities are pretty complicated and that they, overlap and conflict with and interact with other identities in, in interesting and productive and sometimes troublesome ways. It's a very powerful anecdote, and it's an experience that I will never have. As a white man growing up in a very conservative Canadian city, what I was taught about racism is that it's overt. What has really struck me then throughout 2020 are reflections from people of color who say, yes, it's that, but... It's also hugely discreet, microaggressions on a daily basis. It's awful, but it's not news. This has been something of a takeaway for a lot of white people. And yet there's so much more to learn and so much can be taken from a book like My Shadow is My Skin and from your chapter. What do you feel should be the primary takeaway for us as listeners and as readers of Errand and of the book? What are some of the lessons that we can take from this collection? and your piece to help us move forward in 2020. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a great set of questions, I think. I mean, uh, but to, to focus on the, the takeaway, I guess a work like this challenges assumptions. Maybe that's, that's a simple answer, but, but I think um, for, for those already interested in Iran, already interested in Iranian literature, already interested in, even even the diaspora. I mean, I think for a sort of a non-Iranian diaspora reader, sort of a, a general reader out there, whoever that is, I guess the takeaway from this is going to be there are so many different ways to be a certain whatever, in this case, having Iranian heritage. And even there, it's not only people with Iranian heritage. I mean, there's a way in which Catherine's work and some of the things she said in the interview with you about sort of, you know, an, a white American woman marrying into an Iranian 
uh, family and, and realizing that she can take some, I won't say ownership, but responsibility, some kind of shared, shared sense of responsibility to that culture. That's beautiful. I mean, to me, that, that is a way of sweeping away assumptions about what it means to, to be part of what I called earlier as that sort of network of the Iranian diaspora. And then other, you know, LGBTQ identities within the Iranian culture, um, sort of racial tensions between uh, ethnic groups within uh, the Iranian diaspora, um, um, and productive, you know, com- cultural combinations. So I'd say, you know, if, if, if you take away anything from this is that the sense of identity and what agency looks like, I guess that's what I'd say, what agency looks like is completely unpredictable and, and nuanced and complex, uh, and often very unexpected. And I think if we brought that sense of, you know, responsiveness to to every kind of cultural encounter that we have, you know, like the "Hey, we're cousins" comment <laughs> on the bus, uh, you know, that would go a long way. Thank you so much for your wonderful insight here, Babak. That was really interesting for me to hear, and I'm sure it will be for others listening. I promised myself before we concluded today that I would take time to ask about your music. Please tell us more about your work with the Resident Freaks and the connections between your life and your work and your wonderful, wonderful music. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, you know, y- you you selected such great sort of sections that fit so well um, with, with what you're doing in this series. Um, and I appreciate that a lot. And I think... Interestingly, the ones you chose, in my mind, from that album are the most uh, sort of Persian-influenced among those pieces. It's, uh, you know, the album is titled Error and Trial, and a lot of my influences are very kind of uh, American folk and blues. And and that album has very bluesy pieces and, and you know, sort of singer songwritery Dylan-influenced things. But those two in particular, especially um, the concluding one, uh, which is from a song called Too High, it's in 6-8 time, and it and it uses a scale that, in my view anyway, in my mind, and, and a cadence that comes out of uh, um, years of listening to Persian pop music when I was a kid, right? So there'd be these big parties, either Persian and sometimes sort of Arabic uh, pop music would be playing, people dancing away, and that sort of cadence is. I very consciously tried to actually capture it. It wasn't an accident. I thought, okay, I want something in six eight time. I want something with that sort of descending minor cadence. Um, and the drummer I worked with, Jay Allen Jackson, he was just you know all over it. And so, in in that sense, there is this sort of tip of the hat, if you will, to a kind of cultural influence that, you know, is always fleeting, but that I don't want to quite let go. And the lyrics are about, well, you, you don't hear the lyrics on the, on the podcast, but um, the song is about, in a sense, about my second oldest brother. 
who ended up traveling a lot and kind of, you know, um, having the Icarus type experience. Uh, um, so it's kind of about him and the, and the piece that opens your segment, um, the, it's, it's darker, but, but also I think the kind of chord progressions and, and, um, and melody lines that I was pursuing there again, hark back to, um, some of the first musical experiences I had in San Diego with, with a, um, a dear friend, Farhad Bahrami. Uh, you should look him up. He's kind of been the um, ambassador for Iranian music in the San Diego area uh, for decades. And I just remember being, uh, I don't know, 17 years old, um, going to a party with my brothers and being introduced to Farhad. And we sat there and, and played played acoustic guitar together for, for a couple of hours. And, um, you know, those songs do bear some of that kind of, um, deeply personal, but also sort of culturally meaningful, uh, influence. At the outset of this project, when I was thinking about music, I thought it was going to take some time to find the right pieces. And it didn't at all. The second I hit play, I knew these were the right fit. I remember contacting Catherine and Layla straight away and telling them, yes, we have found the ones. <laughs> and so I suppose we have found the right time to cue up our concluding music. Dr. Ilahi, thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with me. I'm very touched by your piece. I learned so much from it and from chatting with you. I truly cannot thank you enough for being so open and for being so generous and sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. tuning into another episode of what's that noise if you haven't done so already please subscribe to the show on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app if you have a topic or guest in mind don't hesitate to get in touch with tommy on twitter at wtncast stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time keep listening to the noise